You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. Wherever I would go, they'd say, go get them, or the cars would honk. And finally, the only thing that was there for me to go for was the office of mayor, and I did, and I won. Former Chicago Mayor Jane Byrne, today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. For 21 years, Mayor Richard J. Daley ran the city of Chicago, and I mean he ran the city of Chicago. Now, one member of his cabinet was a young woman named Jane Byrne. She was the commissioner of consumer sales. Shortly after Daley's death in 1976, Byrne left her city position, and in 1979, she ran for mayor. And against the odds, against the machine that Daley ran, Jane Byrne won. She became not just the first female mayor of Chicago, she was the first woman elected mayor of any major U.S. city. However, four years later, the same forces that had swept Jane Byrne into office swept her back out again. In 1992, she wrote a political memoir, and that's when I had the chance to meet her and kind of talk about old times because I grew up in the Chicago area. So here now, from 1992, Jane Byrne. Is this properly classified more an autobiography, more a history? I hope that it's a skillful combination of both for two reasons. One, to understand the present of a major city, I think you had to understand the past, know where all of these various aspects came from to make Chicago what it is today. Secondly, it it details, you know, like uh, my great-great-great-grandparents' arrival in Chicago so that the history of it is also sort of autobiographical in that, you know, I'd hear these stories as a child that, that really were history-making in Chicago. Uh, they were here for the Great Chicago Fire and the Civil War and Abraham Lincoln, and and those things handed down, you know, they all go into the making of a person, which I hope a lot of it went into the making of a me. Uh, so I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, and then last of all, it's the current decade Chicago seen through the eyes of a former mayor. And so that's what we were hoping to accomplish, and I hope I did. Well, you can't, it's difficult to write about any city and its history without also writing about the people and the personalities Who were in it at the time. Of, right. whom, of whom you are one. It I, made it easy, to tell you the truth. It didn't mean that there didn't have to be a lot of research. I spent three and a half years writing the book because, you know, I'm Irish, and a lot of time the Irish tend to exaggerate, and I wanted to verify all these stories that I had heard. Uh, they were all true. So, uh, But it took many trips to the historical society, and I had to locate those great-great-great-grandparents on the street in which they lived, and they were right there in the book. Yeah, I hadn't realized until I moved out to the East Coast several years ago just how often ignored Chicago is oh, by, yeah, very by much the East so. Coast. I believe it is. I think it was even in, in the, the, the decision to write the book uh, and how much interest there would be on, you know, the, the East feeling about how much interest would there be in the book about the Midwest, you know. And that's probably one of the reasons Chicago is always called Second City as well. And has the image Second City, which I don't happen to share. Yeah, that's the one. Me neither. I just I love Chicago, and I can't imagine is, why people it, out here think of they they think of Illinois as just this blob of farmland. Farmland, which, which, cows, pigs, right? And Al Capone. That's and, what they think Al, of it. Al Capone. That's, that's right. So there's a lot of things in this book that I hope dispel that. You know, and you get the true feeling of a a great Midwestern city. I honeymooned in Atlanta in 1978. Mm-hmm. And the man at a, at a store we, we stopped in 
when we told him we were from near Chicago, mm -hmm. he's, he kind of backed away with an alarmed look on his face. I know. And he said, those gangsters? I know. When I would go over to Europe, or by, whether it was Israel, Britain, uh, Ireland, they'd always say, uh, El Capone. <laughs> you know, it would be like, will you knock it off? <laughs> our streets are fine. Our people are fine, you know. So there's a lot in there, too, about the mob and about the... Uh, the way it was with the mob when I was the mayor of Chicago and things that I had to do to, you know, to let them know that, you know, they're, they're not going to go beyond a certain corner on the street and it wasn't going to spill over into the lives of the people of Chicago. And uh, it has to do with the moving into Cabrini-Green and uh, housing projects. And uh, it's there. I was one that was never one to say it's not there. I mean, I don't think there are very many major cities in America that don't have some some sort of uh, under underworld to organize crime because they're there how they got there and why they're there that's all in the book and uh took a lot of time to get to the bottom of that one let me tell you that one was not easy <laughs> there's a lot of legends around chicago and 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 myths as well mm -hmm, and, a lot and, of myths uh, uh, there's been uh, there's been a lot of exaggeration irish and otherwise mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, over the years mm -hmm. uh, is it difficult to sit down and try to separate what really happened versus what everybody thought happened no no, I don't think so. Be, I, could, I could understand it very well because I myself was involved in government and politics for 17 years. So I think I knew pretty well the myths about Mayor Richard J. Daley I, the man for whom I worked, the reality of the man. And then as you compared that to other periods of, of political history in Chicago or the, or the governments themselves, you could, and if you had been a mayor, you could pretty well see, uh, this was this and this was this. And it's very easy to discern it once you've sat in that chair. Could you have become mayor if if not for his death? Well, there was a mayor in between. But, I mean, did, did his death set in motion the machinery that, that put in your mind the idea, well, maybe, no, maybe I could? No, I'll tell you. what. Uh, I worked for him in his cabinet for oh, at least 10 years, uh, commissioner. Uh, I was very young when he appointed me there uh -huh. into that cabinet. And I saw the city government changing uh, before he died, to be honest, uh, after his stroke. And I also was co-chairman of the Democratic Party of Cook County, and he was the chairman. So I also shared an office with him in the Bismarck Hotel at Democratic Party headquarters. And there I saw the cliques developing, you know, the political cliques. And those that literally knew, well, you know, as it is in politics, uh, and quote, not me, I never said it, but they would, the old man. You know, he's going down. And they were getting ready. And even then, it didn't say, oh, yeah, come on, you guys get out of the way because Jane Byrne's getting ready. I didn't. But, you know, after he died, I stayed on as a commissioner, and it wasn't the same. And it wasn't the same just because he was gone. It was clearly some of the plans that had been laid as to who would be the new takeover people of this party and of the government were not my cup of tea. And uh, I didn't think they were making it as a, as a governmental body. I stayed about a year and maybe three months, four months. And uh, with the late Mayor Daley, and many people liked him and many people disliked him, Never once did I see him compromise good government. And I was in a law enforcement area of that government. I never had a phone call about, you know, help this guy or fix that ticket or never did. And then I was all of a sudden called into the office and felt that I was being compromised over a taxi cab rate increase. And I let it go for a while uh, and watched a little longer, but it bothered me and it bothered my conscience tremendously, not because I was involved in it, but because they brought me in on it. And I didn't, because I was the commissioner, so they had me there. But what they did was wrong. And so finally I went public. And when I went public, I thought, find a job in Idaho, because you're never going to get a job in Chicago again. It's a machine town. But nevertheless, I could not be 
that untrue to the oath that I took or to the values that I had about government. And so I did, and it went on for about a week of headlines and lie tests, lie detectives. The mayor took one, I took one. Uh, it was a wild and woolly two weeks in Chicago's history. And I quit. I mean, he fired me, I quit, whichever way you want. And um, it was the people after that. The day I left City Hall, I left in a taxi cab, obviously. I didn't have a car anymore. And I'm standing on the corner of Randolph and LaSalle, waiting for a cab. And all these cars going by are honking shouting, give him hell, Jane, go get him. And it's like, oh, sure, I'm out of a job. I should give him hell, go get him. And I thought that would subside, and it just did not. It went on and went on wherever I would go. They'd say, go get him, or the, the cars would honk. I'd be on the expressway in my father's car, because I no longer had one, as I say. And people would give you the V for victory or that thumbs up. And I think to myself as I was driving, uh-huh, I am a widow. I have a child to raise. I have no job. Uh, I did what I thought was right, but what are these people talking about? Go get them, you know, thumbs up, go for it. And finally, the only thing that was there for me to go for was the office of mayor, and I did, and I won. After this short break, Jane Byrne recounts the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Now back to my 1992 interview with former Chicago Mayor Jane Byrne. Were you at any point along the way, or are you now surprised that you were elected? No. No, from the day that I declared. I'll tell you, it was very a very difficult decision to go public, all right? It was uh, against anything I had ever done. Uh, I had loved working in government. Uh, I liked democratic politics. I began with John Kennedy. Uh, and I would weigh all of that. You know, I would weigh it every day for a good two and a half, three months. Uh as to what do you do when you're caught and you're brought into this thing. And I thought of the dead president. I thought of the dead mayor. Uh, I thought of, you know, I'd gotten into it after John Kennedy was killed because then I thought Bobby would run. And I wanted to be in the right place at the right time with Mayor Daley. And I thought, you know, I can't turn my back on what made me get into government, which was, you know, the call, march across the new frontier and all these things that were bringing hope and inspiration and hopefully... Uh, just form justice in government. And I didn't think I was part of it by staying there. And it was a very hard thing to do because Chicago at that time was a closed, uh, controlled town, machine town. And I really didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, but from the day that I made up my mind, I guess it was something like, I know at what price I paid to be, quote, clean in government. And I just don't believe that there's any way somebody that did this can lose. And I'll tell you, no one else in my family, they all thought I, was, they all thought I cracked up. You know, how are you going to beat the machine? You little Jane, you're down the street there driving your own car, handshaking. Uh, but I kept believing it to the point that I did take out, uh, which my husband was almost ready to collapse about, a $75,000 personal loan to pay for my own commercials. And uh, it was, I mean... Believe me, that was a bigger sacrifice than quitting uh, because I didn't know I was going to pay it back with no job. And I did take it out, and we did put the commercials on the air, and I did win. And it, it, uh, there was a thing that uh, Bobby Kennedy had said, which is in the book, the direct quote, um, each time a man or a person stands up for a principle or an ideal, you know. And then it goes on that... Uh, repressed people and forces from all across the universe will join together. And the night that uh, that I won, I felt that it happened. Uh, 
and I felt that Chicago ventilated because while I had been part of, of, of the Democratic Party, the machine, the whatever you want to call it, as its co-chair, for some reason, and maybe it's you get tunnel vision in government or, or tunnel vision, you, this is the way to go, you do it, you don't question. But after I turned on them and I saw the way other people had had to live and the threats and the intimidation and the voter intimidation and the telling poor people you'll get thrown out of your public housing if you don't vote our way, we know how you vote, and, and uh, being invited to go to Lakeshore Drive to... Uh, a coffee party forming and having the woman call me and say, you can't come. They said, you can't come here. That if we, they don't mind, that everybody on the board likes you, but if you come, these, our assessments will go up. They'll get us. And that was how people lived, and I am not exaggerating. And it really burned me. And the more I saw it, you know, driving that car, as I say, alone out there campaigning, the angrier I got. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that night, when that, when that victory came in, uh, it was a great thrill, not just for me. I, I, it was no longer Jane Byrne, you know, out to prove something. It was a city ventilating. And I don't live far from um, Michigan Avenue. In fact, I can look right down on it. And that night, there was a new spirit in the city. And cab drivers were honking. They didn't know why, but they were honking, you know. And people were shouting, we did it on the streets. And they all knew that they broke the machine. And uh, when I stood, I mean, I went the next day... I was beginning to look rather haggish from this lonely campaign, and I made an appointment to go get my hair trimmed, and my uh, every fingernail was broken from shaking hands. My feet were in bad shape from, you know, plodding around in the snow. And I went down the street to Arden's, and a crowd of 450 people stood till I came out, and that was like a two-hour deal. And that is how the spirit was. Uh, again, it wasn't Jane Byrne. It was what they had done. They knew they had broken the machine. And it was a, a ventilating that that city needed at that time. At still, that time. still though, does that too pass? I mean, does does the, sure. the machine not come back? As, no, as, let as, me tell you right now, the machine. The machine is not back. The machi- no, and the machine followed by Harold Washington. Believe me, when he used to say, "I'm going to jump on its grave and dance mm. on its whatever," uh, it changed. Mm. The whole political system changed. I am not against a good machine. Let me make that very clear. Every political organization has to have, uh, you know, some organization to it. But this one had, had been entrenched so long. And one segment of Chicago, Bridgeport, had had control of it for over 55 years. Well, power is, that's too much power in one area for such a long time. And that, we broke it. And then Harold Washington took it further. Uh, one day there will be a strong political organization again, but even as I read the papers uh, today, the New York Times, the Wall, Wall Street Journal, and others that are covering it, they're saying that, you know, it's just not the same. You know, people do their own thing. And that's probably okay, too. As, as thrilling as, as victory is, is there agony in defeat? I mean, yeah, there's, there's I mean, that, believe if, me. If you reach that mountaintop, is there also that Well, valley? I think it was a little worse for me because it was totally unexpected, you know. All the polls... Uh, Channel 257, uh, both newspapers, major newspapers, my own pollster. We were running 22 to 25 percent ahead of both of the other candidates right up until the last weekend. And our numbers had begun to change, however, the week before, our internal numbers. And uh, it was uh, on the south side, it was uh, the beginning of uh, the week before. uh, What the pollsters and the consultants told me was like a religion. And uh, 
it, it kept growing. And where I had been 39% with the black candidate, Harold Washington, in the race, 10 days before I was carrying 40% of, of that constituency. And the last weekend, I was down to about 20, and I was dropping a point and a half every day. Sure. And we calculated the Saturday morning before, okay, another point and a half, point and a half, point and a half. And they had me coming out maybe only 14 points ahead instead of 27. Uh, and things kept going. And uh, at 4 o'clock, no, 3 o'clock in the afternoon that day, when the consultant called me, and he was in touch with some of the uh, television channels that were doing their precinct, uh, selected precinct uh, data feedback, he said, you better get back out on the northwest side. I almost fell off the chair. It was like, I can't, what? And he said, the voting is very heavy on the south side of Chicago. So I got back out. We shook hands and everything. And even then, they were saying, well, eight. It's going to be eight. We were dropping every time they talked to me, I might add. And about uh, as the polls closed, they said three or four. But see, everybody had put the emphasis on the burn daily feud. And everybody was watching this daily. And nobody had been watching Harold Washington. And I was. I, I was in a debate with him. And I, I felt he had awesome uh, power. I really did. And as a campaigner. And uh, when the evening ended, I was three behind. I wasn't four ahead, eight ahead, or any other projected figures. So, yeah, it, it is. Uh, personally, uh, I think I had been in government and in the office of mayor as a commissioner, walking in and out so much. To me, it had become a very accustomed thing. It wasn't like, I don't think I was feeling the way the city was feeling, like, oh, we did it. You know, because I always thought we would do it. But going in there was not awesome to me because I had spent nine and a half years under daily walking in and out that same door. And to me, it was like a step up, you know, from commissioner, cabinet to mayor. Uh, sadness, sure, when you see uh, people that you thought, you know, really liked you. And then you find out, no, they like the mayor, whoever the mayor is, you know. You have a lot of those personal things. But then there's rewards by the same token, too. You have a free time, you too much free time. Uh, you're not bothered with phone calls all day and all night. You know, too, too many times. Um, uh, so yeah, there's a, there's a very deep sadness and there's a sense of loss. You know, uh, which nobody likes to lose. Oh, but we're glad you had enough time to write a book. book. That's right. right. That's right. Is there anything else that you wanted to add, or any question you wanted me to ask you that I didn't? No, I just have a question personally for you. Your mm -hmm. name is Bill Thompson. And as somebody that has just done a book on <laughs> Chicago history through my own autobiography, I want no the relation. world to know that, uh, <laughs> be it true or be it not true, because you can never tell about Chicago mayors, uh, if there's a relationship here, uh, Big Bill Thompson was Big Bill Thompson, one of the most notorious mayors Chicago ever had. <laughs> Good right. to talk to you, Bill. Jane Byrne died in 2014. She was 81. And you can find an easy Amazon link to Jane Byrne's book at our website, heardeverything.com. And that's where you'll also find my 1998 interview with the woman who ran for vice president in 1984 alongside Walter Mondale, Geraldine Ferraro. When I looked at, it was not only all these people screaming, and there was such joy, but I was also looking at tears rolling down people's faces, including some of the women reporters. And my 1990 interview with the former governor of Texas, Ann Richards. In the middle of the speech, President Bush said, we must cancer conquer and he looked down at me sitting on the front row and he said well you know ann richards was right <laughs> and of course we post new episodes of now i've heard everything here every monday wednesday and friday and you can find us on all major podcast platforms and thanks for listening 
Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, a conversation with one of today's most popular, most successful, most influential filmmakers. My 2006 interview with Tyler Perry. Wait a minute, does rap music cause road rage? Yeah, according to Medea, of course, it's one and the same. <laughs> All of accidents that happen with road rage are you somebody's listening to rap music every time. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.